Close your eyes, Josh. Take a deep breath and relax. Focus on the spot in the center of your forehead. The universe is deathless. Is deathless because having no finite self, it stays infinite. A sound man, by not advancing himself, stays the further ahead of himself. Welcome to Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective Series. There's something wrong with this place. I'm not imagining it. I can feel it. It's, it's like a sickness. Hosted by Stuart. He sees things no living person is supposed to see. Arnie. This is nothing like being dead. I know. And Marjorie. Well, the universe picked a fight with the wrong chick. I'm not sure if you're ready to hear this yet. But unfortunately, I can't waste any time easing you into it. This movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. That's fine, gentlemen. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Insidious, Chapter 3, starring Dermot Mulroney, Stephanie Scott, Angus Sampson, Lee Winnell, Lynn Shay, directed by Lee Winnell. See this face? This is my podcasting face. When you see this face, it means I'm about to podcast. This is Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is Marjorie. Insidious is back, and so are we. Once again, one week behind the theatrical release, as we were with Chapter 2, if I recall. Well, I'm always on vacation. Last time I was on vacation with my mother. This time I was in New York. Part of the reason we're running behind, I'll admit it, it's my fault. I wanted to do other things and podcasts, so I just didn't feel like Insidious 3 was worth canceling my trip to New York. So I saw this movie as soon as the plane landed on a Monday morning, but I wasn't eager. I don't know that any of us are eager. Is the world? Did you see the budget on this one? Insidious <laughs> Chapter 2 made 40 million opening, huge. People obviously had some admiration for that first Insidious. This one opened to half that. True. And I mean, you look at just the state of ghost films in general and the Conjuring films and paranormal activity films, they're not grossing what they used to. That said, this film has already more than justified its meager $10 million budget with about 25 million worldwide in its opening weekend. Yeah, exactly. It's how profitable do they have to be. That they're not being what they used to. It just means we're going to get the same old, same old kind of horror. I was excited that, you know, they were going to spend more money on horror movies. You know, Ouija, believe it or not, Universal originally greenlit that thing to have a hundred million dollar budget. And then someone, you know, woke up and realized... You could buy a Ouija board for ten? <laughs> <laughs> I think they saw the grossest for Battleship and realized that board games were not where they should be putting mega bucks. But I do feel like in the last two years, you know, Conjuring, Insidious Chapter 2, huge openings, huge anticipation. Well, the fans come out. Poltergeist did okay. Annabelle did okay. Ouija did okay. But none of them are grossing like those movies were two years ago. And I don't know, is it the movies or are we just kind of over it? Is horror over? I kind of thought that because it's when it started with Paranormal Activity, that was supposed to be, oh my gosh, this is so true and this really happened. Yeah. And there's only so long you can play that as the Blair Witch Project demonstrated. And so that was about, what, 
10, 12 years before paranormal activity. Is that about right? Yeah, about. I'm guesstimating. Yeah. So now someone's tried it again, and it's the law of diminishing returns with it because they got people in with the first one, and some people thought it was really real, like they did with the Blair Witch Project. Sure. And then some people thought Insidious possibly was real. The way they build it is, you know, is this from the same people? And Those people really just need to learn the difference between fiction and nonfiction. Some people thought Annabelle was a true story. Well, they build that as such. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's not everyone's fault. I, they, they're they hoping that we mistake their half-truths and kind of sort of allegedly happened mythos for fact. Yes, I agree. There is that marketing campaign out there, but... I think you're right. I think that everyone feels like they know what the scam is. When the circus is in town, they know what's under the big top. So if you're a fan, you go. And if you've had your fill, well, you don't. Yeah, as each one comes out, people that have been burned by the different ones are like, yeah, you know what? I'll wait till it's on HBO because I do that a lot. Yeah, I, I don't have any guilt about making you guys wait an extra week. I don't know that it gave the opportunity for anybody else to see the movie that wasn't planning to. But yeah, Insidious Chapter 3, it's a just a less exciting proposition than Chapter 2 was. And yet, I was... <laughs> excited for this more than i was either of the previous chapters why yeah. i don't understand you sometimes it's like you will yourself it's like you have this olympian gift to <laughs> dig deep and find one strand to grab onto and pull with all your might to say there's hope okay why arnie what what about this made you you just really don't like rose Byrne? you're glad she was gone <laughs> No, I will admit, I do have that Olympian feat. One of us has to be excited. I will never <laughs> fake it. But because I'm most often doing the research and everything, I get enveloped in the world of the movies, and I do get more excited than I was before our retrospective. But this is a different case. Marjorie and I were going to see another movie that we were reviewing for Now Playing. God only knows which one at this point. It was earlier this year. It might have been the much worse than any insidious Jupiter Ascending. Mm -hmm. But while we were waiting, there was a trailer, and it was the girl in bed knocking on the wall, and then the knocks come back, and then she texts the boy next door and says, did I wake you? And he goes, I'm at my grandma's, and then a big scare comes. And then they show a body fell out a window, and somebody says, he must have jumped. And then the girl gets pulled out the window. And I'm like, this looks kind of good. And then I'm thinking, I might actually see this. <laughs> and then the title came up, Insidious Chapter 3. Well, I definitely am obligated to see this contractually. So maybe I have a hope of it being good. It looked so different. It was when Lynn Shea showed up in the trailer that I'm like, is she doing another ghost movie? I didn't even put together. It was insidious till the title came up. Plus, I want to point out, you were the one that liked Chapter 2. Marjorie and I were pretty much hating the franchise after trying to figure out what was going on in that concluding Lambert chapter. It didn't make any sense. I was hopeful because I thought they were going to leave the Lambert storyline behind and try something new. It, the stinger of Chapter 2 led me to believe that it was going to involve the ghost of Lin Shay and Specs and Tucker off, you know, helping some girl in a wheelchair. Well, it does involve Lynn Shay, Spence, and Tucker helping a girl in a wheelchair, but instead of the <laughs> sequel, it's a prequel. 
<laughs> I know. Why is it chapter two? This is like a preface. Yeah. This is like a prologue. This is not a new chapter. It does not pick up where the last chapter ended. This is going back. It's an origin story of sorts. Yeah. Insidious origins, insidious beginnings. I mean, there's a lot of these generic words we could use. Yeah. And senor, I also want to point out it is no longer insidious. The marketing uh, no longer highlights the S and the I as red in the white titling of the insidious title card. It's now Einsidious. <laughs> Three eyes, red. <laughs> so I will now just refer to this as Einsidious. <laughs> That sounds like some kind of nasal disease. You have to see an ENT for. <laughs> You don't want to get it, let me tell you. Well, I was also a bit excited for this because once in a while, we do get contacted by movie studios. And it's always a thrill when it's a real studio and not, hey, would you like to review this really low-rent sci-fi thing from a supporting actor who was in a movie you saw in 1978? <laughs> we get a lot of those. You do get a lot of those. I agree. <laughs> those are unsolicited discs that come in the mail. And I'm like, oh, I'll review that. And then I never get to it. But an actual studio contacted us because we were registered press at the C2E2 convention in Chicago. And there was an insidious experience there, which basically amounted to a trailer driven into the building, but then what's inside was kind of cool. And we were given a reserve spot versus having to wait in the line. We still had to wait in a pretty long line, though, but... You, all right, so someone created a, a haunted trailer? You guys are walking through some tractor trailer thing? Well, we didn't know what it was. It was billed as the Oculus Rift experience with Insidious. Wait a minute, because Oculus is another Blumhouse thing. No, no, no. That's Oculus Rift is like the virtual reality goggles that you wear. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I saw somebody at a Comic-Con or somewhere try to get me to wear one. I never did. At the last San Diego Comic-Con, they tried to make me wear one for X-Men, but they were trying to get me in a line that was like two hours long. It was yeah, less enticing. Yeah. But I was as excited to see Oculus Rift for the first time as I was for Insidious or Insidious or whatever. Insidious. Insidious. <laughs> so we go and there have a couple of like statues of Veilhead that people can pose with. I got pictures of Marjorie being choked by Veilhead. And I'm sorry. So help me out. You're walking through. What are you seeing? This is outside. We've not gotten oh, okay. in yet. What they've got parked in McCormick Center, which you're familiar with that in Chicago. Yeah, sure. They brought in a semi-trailer. Okay. And parked it on the convention floor. There were cosplayers that worked there, but... They dressed like Specs and the guy. And Veilhead. No, the Veilheads were just like foam statues. Oh, okay. They weren't cosplayers. It was the finest latex and foam. All right. But then you get there and they, of course, to up the experience, they use the best 1950s scam to make you sign a waiver uh. because what's inside is so <laughs> frightening that they cannot be held responsible. Right out of the William Castle playbook. I love it. I actually do love it. Quite honestly, <laughs> I have a sweet spot for that kind of nostalgic, we're going to scare you booga booga booga. Well, then they add to the fear by making this guy making sure, I'm sure he's an intern, going to each person that signs this waiver and making sure they understand that you have to go in alone. You cannot go in with anyone else. I will say the fear tactics were really working on two women behind us in line, where one was literally calling her mother on the cell phone because she was so petrified, and the other just kept toying with getting out of line. And yes, from the trailer were emitted 
these loud screams every once in a while. And it was, I don't think it was staged. It was haunted house sounds. You know, when you hear like the air compressor, like it does that shot of air and you hear banging and things like that outside a haunted house and you're waiting to get in. Yeah, I think it's the score of this movie. Yes, <laughs> that's what we heard standing outside. And they made up the door on the trailer to look like the porch of a house. Okay. And we get inside and it's very much spooky stuff. You know, you see like tarot cards and... It's like 1940s decor. Well, really, remember, Stuart, that oil lamp that was in my living room growing up with the naked woman Venus de Milo or whatever? <laughs> Oh, God, yes. Yeah, that house was all kinds of Greco chic. <laughs> it's almost like a hostess stand when you get in and go through this little hallway in the trailer with all the spooky stuff. And they had on an endless loop the, I've always wanted to know how I'm gonna go. Oh, yeah. Tell me, my friend, how I meet my end. And it was coming through like a real staticky 1930s phonograph. You almost picture the RCA dog looking into it. Okay, so they're actually really tying into this movie. Somebody saw this movie and said, we can make a haunted attraction based on it. Yes. Kinda. Are there any clues to what's going on in this movie in that house? Because I got a lot of questions. No, 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 and we'll get to that. So I go in, and first of all, something you should know about me, I don't see well in the dark because I have some eye issues. And I could not see where I was going. And this guy <laughs> tried to jump out at me, and I didn't see him. And then I finally said, dude, can you just tell me where the door is? Because I can't see it. And he just looked at me, rolled his eyes, and pointed at the sign, which was lit up. But I couldn't see because they got, like, smoke sheet machines going. And I, I literally cannot see when there's low-light situations. This sounds great. Okay. Meanwhile, I was jaded. So scary that it's going to – I have to sign a waiver – prove it and so i'm walking down this hallway and i'm like yeah i've done haunted houses before where's the guy jumping out but i have a tendency to walk a little fast when i'm reaching my destination if i'm told to go to the door i'm gonna go to that door i actually passed the guy before he could jump <laughs> out at me and he had to come up from behind and start shouting behind he's me. like smoking a cigarette out back he's like oh shit it's open <laughs> he can't touch me by law so he couldn't turn me around and finally i'm like oh hi so that worked for neither of us. He was probably really let down about his experience that day based on <laughs> us. But he helped me get into the room and helped me see. And I was told to just wait there. And you're in this room. You kind of hear spooky stuff. There's a television that's like crackly and staticky. And mine looked like the glass was broken, but it was just a sticker. I had a major break in the experience because there was a pocket door, which that's the kind of door that slides into the wall. That doesn't okay. open. And I could see it wasn't shut all the way. And I could see the person in the room. I'm like, there's a room next to me. And I could see the person sitting in a chair with the Oculus Rift on. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's where I'm going next. <laughs> so I sat there and I was bored. The thing was on a loop. Scary sounds were playing. I'm like, all right. I don't think anyone's jumping out at me because I can see the people in the next room. There's no other anything in this room. And in this room, they actually had like a night vision camera. And this is where they were supposed to take the scary photo of you, because if they took it while you were in Oculus Rift, you just have these big goggles on. And both of our photos, they tweeted them, both of our photos, we look so damn bored. Yeah, it, they tweeted and says, this is how you die, Margie C. And I'm like, oh, I die looking incredibly bored and pissed off. <laughs> well, finally, 
coming for me is this cosplaying woman who's in all white pancake makeup and dressed in like this tattered shroud of white. And she just doesn't speak. She just smiles and points, you know, trying to be like one of the ghost girls from this movie. Mm-hmm. And I didn't put that together until I'm retelling the story. And she leads me into this crackly room and then she helps me wordlessly putting the goggles on and the headphones on so it was all ready. Okay, so you weren't wearing goggles before all of this? No. I had a guy dressed like Specs helping me with the little suit and tie. looked like he worked at Steak and Shake. And he was not very good. He disinfected it in front of me, which I was happy he disinfected it. I'm not going to lie. That could be part of his act. You know, I had a ghost who didn't speak. Her act would be to have disinfected before. If he was Specs... It might be part of the act that he has to prepare the equipment. I don't know. I, I suppose. He put it on, told me to put the headphones on. It was actually too big for my head, so I had to hold it on the side. <laughs> it was huge. I, I wouldn't stay on my head. And he goes, oh, I think you're just going to have to hold it. And I'm like, all right. And I could not see a lot of it. Some of the stuff on the left side was kind of not great for me with the Oculus Rift because of my eye problems. You saw it all, though. Oh, yeah. We had like night and day experiences with Oculus Rift. She had a lame host and bad goggles that didn't stay up. I was completely immersed into this virtual reality world that other than being pixelated was so real. It was fucking scary. It's scarier than anything in any Insidious movie. I had a true lawnmower man experience. You're turning your head and what you see turns perfectly with your head to the point that I kind of got a body dysmorphia. I tried to do the lawnmower man where you put your hand in front of your glasses, but because there's no sensors on my hand, no hand showed up. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, that that would freak me out. You're right. That that kind of dissociation, yeah, that's like drug stuff. You're like, (laughs) oh my God, I'm tripping. (laughs) Yeah. Every so often I had this real feeling of displacement and I had to just Focus on looking around and maintaining an awareness that this is not my body. But like ghosts would appear and they'd be off to the side and I'd have to turn my head. If I didn't turn my head, I wouldn't have seen them. And at one point, a ghost appears next to me. And at that moment, the woman in the room brushed part of her outfit over my arm so that it coincided and it felt like I could feel the ghost's outfit. Mm -hmm. I got none of that. I I got none of that happening, and I could see light on the outside of the goggles, and Specs was not a good host. Finally, the story begins, and I haven't seen any Insidious movie. I did not go back and rewatch them for this review. I just listened to our old reviews and remembered. But I'd completely forgotten that super silly World War II gas mask type thing Uh until Lin Shea shows up in my Oculus Rift, says these ghosts are coming for me, and puts on the mask. I'm like, oh, this is the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And a bunch of ghosts came out and things were popping up and books were flying and Lin Shea was shouting that I have to concentrate on coming back into the life out of the further and... I'm like, okay, the 3D, ah, fucking amazing. Blows Avatar out of the water. I mean, it felt like a real area. It just didn't have a real resolution. It kind of looked like your old monitor we used to play the Nightmare on Elm Street game on. Only actual 3D. Yeah, but that stuff will get better. I mean, that's really encouraging then, that we're getting close to what I thought we would have decades ago. a, A virtual reality world that you can access through headgear. Yeah, but... Was I scared? Did the waiver come into effect? 
No, I was actually really impressed with the tech, and it did help up my excitement, because I'm like, I wonder how this ties into the new movie. It doesn't at all. She never even wears the mask in the new movie. No, and in fact, the last bit walking out of the trailer might have been the scariest part. They had a thing rigged on the floor that when you stepped on it, it shot this big blast of air at you. I was kind of expecting it because I kind of heard the person from air that shh, and I stepped on it and all it did was tick me off because <laughs> it just blew a whole bunch of air in my face and that was not scary like that. It was just annoying. So yes, I came into this pretty psyched, but in addition to a change of font with the title, there's also a change behind the scenes, a pretty big one. James Wan, he's now way too big for Blumhouse. I mentioned previously he didn't want to be a king of horror. He went from his groundbreaking year into directing Fast and Furious 7, and now he has just been announced that he's taking on one of the DC Studios pictures and doing Aquaman. Yeah, I, I feel like we're going to get his movies no matter what genre he decides to go with, just because his tastes seem to mirror our own, but we kind of knew he was going to lead the franchise. I pretty much called that Lee Winnell would step in, make this his directorial debut. Yeah, and he was... Excited to do it. He said that he fell in love with this story while he was writing it, and Blumhouse offered him the directing position, and so he decided to take the opportunity to make his directorial debut here. And I can definitely tell certain things are different while others remain the same. I read a lot of interviews with Lee as prep, and he was saying that he wanted it to be an insidious film, but not to rip off the stuff Juan had done. We'll have to discuss if he succeeded. I agree. This feels, to preface my thoughts, like a more subdued version. If the last movie, and I did go back and rewatch it, and it is as horrible as I remember. It was worse than I remember it, actually. I remember it being a bad movie. It's an incomprehensible movie. It is a noisy, loud, in-your-face movie. This tries to dial it back. This is a more subtle ghost story. I guess that's the way I would look at it anyway. Arnie, I got to know. Sometimes I have, you know, green arrow remorse or red arrow remorse. And I'll go back and I'll I'll flip it, you know, when I'm like, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. Star Trek being an example of a movie I red arrowed when I reviewed it. And then when I went back for the sequel and saw the original again, I was totally wrong. I, I flipped it. I got to know. Chapter two. <laughs> You green arrow that movie. You can't mean that. Tell everyone you were kidding and we'll forgive you. Maybe. I can't live with someone that's like, yeah, that first one, no. But chapter two. Well, I have not revisited it and I don't plan on revisiting it. Okay. Well, that speaks volumes. I didn't buy it. It was at best a weak recommend and this entire series has not been one that Absence has made the heart grow fonder on. Correct. But when I re-listened to my reviews, the experience of the movies did come back to me, and I did like some of the concepts and conceits going on in Chapter 2 more than Part 1. The fun of the time travel, the fun of the body hopping, all of that thrilled me more than the Poltergeist ripoff of the first one. But I'd really have to re-watch both to have the experience again to truly re-rank these Maybe when they announce the last one, this is the last, I might do it then. But it's at best a weak recommend compared to a weak not recommend. Okay, well, I can't believe that if you went back now and watched all three, if we were building up to part three and had never seen, and you hadn't seen part two in theaters, I think it would have gone a different way. 
I know I certainly felt that way. And I did rewatch it because I wanted to know if I was wrong. You know, I was incredibly hard on the movie. I found it confusing and perplexing. And I said it was horrible and killed the franchise. Knowing that I had to come back to the franchise anyway, I rewatched it. I was relieved to know that we weren't going to get so much of the Lamberts, although their story's not done. It's continued on sort of in here, but uh, they couldn't get the actors. (laughs) And during the time of part two, Patrick Wilson said he felt these characters story was done and he didn't see any more to explore with his character in future sequels. I think that speaks volumes, too. And yet here we are with this movie. Well, I don't think we should delay talking about the movie anymore. We've talked about everything except the movie. (laughs) If we must. So, Stuart, give them the plot of The Exorcist. Insidious. Insidious! (laughs) Chapter 3. A few years before helping the Lambert family fight off the demons that haunted son Dalton in the first Insidious, medium Elise Rayner was a depressed shut-in, grieving over the suicide of her husband, Jack. Lynn Shea's character no longer wants to earn her living using her supernatural powers, but briefly reconsiders when she's visited by Quinn Brenner, played by tween star Stephanie Scott. She's a star of something? Ant Farm. She is a Nickelodeon show. I can't believe you don't watch it. Wow. I feel so out of touch now. Yeah, I've never even heard of it. (laughs) The high school senior wants help contacting her dead mother, Lily, and Elise quickly senses that the girl's previous solo attempts to reach into the spirit world have put her in danger. Indeed, a specter in a hospital gown wearing an oxygen mask is now stalking Quinn, whispering to her at night through a bedroom vent, waving at her from the stage wings during her flubbed audition to acting school, and distracting her attention so that she doesn't see an oncoming car while she's standing in the middle of the street. Quinn spends three weeks in the hospital recovering from being run over, but eventually is well enough to return home in a wheelchair. Father Sean and Brother Alex fail to notice all the paranormal activity swirling around the immobile girl, which includes bloody footprints, knocks on the wall, and a reoccurring vision of this wheezing ghost. But Quinn's crazy cat lady neighbor Grace can see the phantom and and dubs him the man who can't breathe. Shortly before she dies, I guess she can't breathe either. I I think it's natural causes. I'm not really sure why Grace is here or why she dies. Dementia's how she dies, (laughs) but I'm I'm keeping it in till we talk about it. But yeah. Skeptical Sean remains unconvinced, like all of us, until (laughs) cracks in the ceiling indicate the demon emanates from the unoccupied apartment above them, and he saves his daughter from being pulled out the window by that suicidal man who can't breathe. Elise wants to help, but every time she steps into the further, she's attacked by her own demon stalker, the Bride in Black. No! Not Veilhead again! No! (laughs) I want Lipstick Demon! (laughs) Yeah, it's Parker, and he's been following her ever since she made Josh Lambert forget about him. No, he has. No, she hasn't. No, he hasn't. Whatever he wants to be called. The that's not what happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, Brother Alex is a fan of ghost hunting web series Spectral Sightings, and so he's the one to suggest inviting over Specs and Tucker to rig Quinn up with a head cam and microphone. But all that really gets them is some found footage jumps of the disabled girl walking around on her broken legs and threatening to slash her own throat with a box cutter. 
At the insistence of her useless friend Carl from Chapter 2, Elise finally agrees to host a climactic seance in which she gets into a literal boxing match with both the bride in black and the man who can't breathe. I mean, there is some WWF shit right there. (laughs) Oh my god, the images I was getting. I laughed out loud in the theater during this. It's pretty great, actually. I'll use that word. I can't believe they went there, but she does. She also confronts a false vision of her dead husband who fails to convince her she should slash her wrist like he did. In the end, Quinn is really only assisted by her own dead mother, Lily, who coaxes the girl to pull away from the clutches of this man who can't breathe and return to the world of the living, where she vows she'll always be watching over her family so there's no need to go into the further anymore, which to me sounds a little bit too helicopter parent. I wouldn't want that. <laughs> like maybe when I'm having sex, you aren't there. I don't. I don't know. But Quinn is excited, so I guess we should be too. Meanwhile, Elise agrees to go into business with Specs and Tucker, despite the fact that they are shams, and she knows the work is going to eventually kill her. And as a prophecy of that doomed fate, she's visited by the Bride in Black as well as the Lipstick Face Demon. He's here, Arnie. He's totally in this movie. As the credits roll. Uh, (laughs) I laugh so hard during so many parts of this movie. And I don't think I was supposed to. Well, let's start with a few years before the Lambert haunting. I mean, that's the title card we get from the beginning. Did you know that, guys? I did not know this was a prequel. I didn't know that either. So I'm trying to figure out, and I'm probably going to get a headache from this. What exactly is the timeline then? What year is this? Right. I agree. Because when we will see Tucker later, he's acting like it's full on 80s. He's got a mohawk. He's got Masters of the Universe t-shirt. And yet he's got an earpiece in. So Bluetooth stuff. So, Well, why is Quinn wearing a Pixies tank top and has PJ Harvey posters on her wall? Which made me think... These are my teen years. But then she's got a flip phone and she's blogging her meals, which looks like a pretty crappy croissant with maple syrup on it. I can answer this Pixie's question. This is the way you make characters in your movie, young characters, look hip is by the director picking his favorite bands from his youth and making the new child wear that, even though there is absolutely no reason she would have been exposed heavily to the Pixies. Yes, you just nailed it for me. Lee Winnell knows nothing about young people, but he has a fantasy of what it was to date girls back in his day, and so this is the girl that he wishes he had, or or what have you. And so we get a teenager from the 1990s, inexplicably, in a movie set... If it's a few years before the Lamberts, I'm going to say this is 2008. Okay, then I can buy the technology. I mean, she was using the T-Mobile sidekick, which is like the old flip rotating screen to take pictures. I don't think people were blogging their food back then. Yeah. Eh, We were definitely into social media. And Masters of the Universe did have a resurgence around that time with the figures. Not the Dolph Lundgren version. Yeah, I just don't feel like Winnell is comfortable writing for young people. He's too far removed. And so what he tells us here is that she loved her mother so much, who we see in pictures loving PJ Harvey and the Pixies, who seemed like a cool alternative girl who went to India and did all the things that we did in our youth as teenagers and young 20-somethings in the 1990s. And because she loved her mother so much... 
That's her entire identity. And in fact, her father, Sean, sees her as a continuation of his wife. He doesn't grieve over losing his wife. He just wants his daughter to pick up the slack and be the stay-at-home mother and raise her brother, Alex. Yeah, he's kind of a dick. I mean, I kind of feel bad for him that he's in that situation. He's got two kids. The useless brother who, once again, is becoming the next in a long tradition of why is the sibling here yes. in these ghost movies? Mm-hmm. I'm going to call him a foster child since we always made fun of the middle child foster from the first two movies. <laughs> oh, There's just you're clever. No point to him. He is the foster child in this movie. He, he does watch the web series that Specs and Tucker are on. And that is his, as far as I can tell, his only reason for being here. He's never put in danger. They send him to the neighbors for much of it. Yeah, he's not even as good as Dana Freeling. But the film tries to sell us on Quinn's ambition. She wants to be an actress. The only thing I really like about that is when she gets all dramatic after blowing the audition and her friend Maggie goes, you really are cut out to be an actress. (laughs) But beyond that, it's kind of left there that she wasn't given the time she needs to rehearse. Her father's not wrong. She probably had a lot of other time she could rehearse other than the morning of when he needed help getting her brother to school. But you do feel for her that because her mother died of cancer, it looks like her life is going to be shit. Yeah, she believes that her life is over at the, you know, tender age of 17. And this is in parallel. I mean, this is designed to be identical to where Elise is at in her life at this point. She's given up being a medium. She is a shut-in, grieving over the fact that her husband committed suicide around the same time that Quinn's mother died of breast cancer. So they're really selling us early here. It's the first real scene of the movie is these two meeting and being charmed by one another. And Elise, even though she doesn't take money for, you know, going into the further anymore, but grudgingly trying to contact the mother and realizing there's dark forces around her. Now, Lee Winnell said in one of the interviews that what he really wanted to do was tell Elise's story. So this whole movie is like Elise's story. X-Men Origins Elise, if you want to go there. And looking at it, I read that after seeing the movie, I'm like, well, that's a really interesting way to go, is have her only in perhaps a third of the running time of the film, but make it her story. But we didn't get much detail there, because all we know is that she has the guy that she met in the restaurant, which we've seen in the previous movies. He came in in part two, yeah, when they realized they killed their ghost hunter and needed a backup. yes. And we know her husband killed himself, which was very sad, I thought. I I thought that was an interesting take, and it was very heartbreaking the way she, every night, she curled up with his cardigan and slept with that. It was interesting. Her dog was named Warren, perhaps after the Warrens, or just a nod to the characters. Oh, The Conjuring. That's right. Yeah. I think Lee Winnell's really mad that James Wan had a bigger success with that movie than with his Insidious movies. (laughs) He could be a little sore about it. But other than that, we don't learn that much about her to be an origin story. I mean, I would think that we would learn how she got to be a medium, see her use her powers, see what made her quit. Was it her husband that made her quit? No, it was apparently Josh. When Josh was a little boy, she scared Veilhead away. And now, even though the previous two movies are telling me that Veilhead had been following Josh this entire time and waiting for a chance to reclaim that lost soul target 
Yeah, you realize you don't even know what he wanted from him. <laughs> I mean, again, again, I tell you, go back to chapter two. It's horrible. But now, apparently, Veilhead has been stalking Elise, telling her, even though he never did this in part one, this is how you die while choking her. I guess he's seen parts one and two. <laughs> and because her husband died, she went into the dark area of the further looking for her husband, I guess because he killed himself, he'd go to hell. And that's when Veilhead was able to escape and follow Elise back. And now anytime she used her psychic powers, Veilhead is there trying to kill her. And so she decides to never use her powers again. I actually am fine with that. I actually think that's a pretty good conflict if we must go back to Veilhead. And I really wish we didn't. I really, really wish that they weren't so preoccupied with the Lamberts. I mean, their Lambert's story was done with chapter one. Chapter two is completely useless, even though they keep trying to tie things back to the previous movie. And it's this annoyance. I think, Arnie, you called it clever. But to me, it's always annoying that they try to pick up these little details and thread them all the way back to something to say, see, it all mattered. Tell me what matters now. Don't tell me what should have mattered two movies ago. I, I'm i all of future forward thinking here. I, I don't care about the Lamberts, so I don't care about Veilhead. But it at least explains to me why she doesn't want to be a medium and it gives her a conflict to overcome in the rest of the movie. I agree with Winnell. This is her story. But of course, they don't make movies about 60-year-old women, certainly not horror movies. It's They've got to throw a young person in here. So they've created her as a teenager named Quinn. But Lee Winnell has a history of convoluted timelines and threads like that. Because when we did Saw, me, Arnie, and Jacob, I started making a timeline. Luckily, I found someone already put the work into it for me. And the timeline for Saw is crazy. Like, things are happening before the movie's actually being released. And, like, part four happens before part two, but part one happens before part three, and all this crazy stuff. And they did not leave any loopholes in it, though. This one doesn't feel as intricate or or as tied together as that but yeah i i do feel like that's a part of the appeal is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on <laughs> and that's what i liked about saw is i liked that cleverness i liked the filling in of the plot holes from the last one i thought it was fun and that's what i was liking about part two here though even though Winnell admitted fully that he was making it up as he went along with part two here it just shows it. Here it feels almost like improv. The continuity is just way off. That Veilhead was stalking Elise this entire time. It could be. I mean, you can stalk multiple people, right? I mean, I can... don't know. I'm not a spirit, but I think she would be a little <laughs> bit more prepared going against Veilhead yes. with Josh again had she been fighting him for many years already. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If we were to go back and rewatch Insidious, which I did not do for this review, and certainly not after watching this movie, we would not, I don't believe, see a performance in which someone knew, knowingly walked into their own demise. They're telling us that Elise knows she's going to die by Veilhead's hands, and she's okay with it because she wants to get out of her house. She, The thing she's overcoming this time is you know, her fear of dying. So I guess that's her arc. You know, I, I'm cool with that. So if they, if it doesn't all tie in together with that lousy second movie, maybe you're going to ding that, Arnie. I don't have a problem with that continuity. I think that gives her something to do if we're going to have a prequel. But it's a very poor 
character development story arc with her where she finds her strength just after one dinner with her friend. And I feel that Lynn Shay, I, I think she's a good actress. I think she, if she was in better vehicles than things like Kingpin, she would be phenomenal. And I think that the character arc they gave her was very lazy and rudimentary and rote. And they could have given her a lot more to overcome the death of her husband. The problem is for the second act of this movie, she does nothing but say, I want to help her, but I can't help her. I want to help her, but I can't help her. And the her we're referring to is Quinn. This is Quinn's movie. Although, what does she do? She spends much of the second act lying in bed going, I want to walk. I want to get away. But I can't. Here's what's really funny is when she goes for her audition early in the movie, she mentioned she wanted to go to college in New York. And so they have her on a street that looks vaguely New Yorkish if you've never been to New York. And she's jaywalking across multiple lanes of traffic. And having been to Manhattan, I leaned over to Marjorie and whispered, because we were at a Sunday matinee that was fairly empty, so I could whisper without bothering anyone. I said, that's probably the scariest thing in the whole movie is jaywalking in Manhattan. Not knowing that it was actually a setup for her being hit by a car when standing in the middle of the street. It was a good jump. I mean, I definitely jumped when she got hit by the car. I did not anticipate it. It's Lee Winnell's one trick. I noticed it. He did it many, many times. As he points the camera to have you look at something in the distance, and what really hurts you is coming up behind. He'll do it at the end of this movie. He does it a couple other times. It's it's how he sets you up. It's his one directorial idea for how to make you jump. But it works really well when... Quinn finally is hit by this car. Well, he has one other trick, and I called it out in the first Insidious review, and if he's trying to break James Wan's tradition, he failed, because anytime the movie goes silent, you know, people stop talking, they stop the Foley work, there's no engines in the background. Whenever it's silent, I just started counting to about seven. I'd be like, silence, 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 straight! <laughs> you know, about that sound mix, I gotta say, uh, there's one thing I learned, if, if nothing else this movie has taught me, it's never go to a Monday morning matinee. I, that, absolutely a bad idea. I could never tell what was the background noises in the film and what was the background noises of my audience, <laughs> which was not plentiful, but filled with strange characters. Someone brought a baby. Oh. And whenever it went silent, it started to cry. I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was in the movie or not. And then someone fell asleep and was snoring. There was some teenagers that were like, when it got quiet, I could hear them going, it's so scared. I don't know if I should look. I don't know what to do. I'm really scared about I'm like, I can't, I can't determine. Determine what's going on in this movie and what's going on in the in this theater. We were in the movie with those same teenagers because I kept looking at Marjorie like, are they for real? Every once in a while we'd hear a <gasps> And there's good jump scares here. I think it's effective somewhat in the beginning of this movie. I do think the first sightings of what will learn is this man who can't breathe are kind of creepy here when it's waving in the wings when it's you know waving her as she's hit by this car i get that you know jumping may be a little overstating it but i get that there's there's a spookiness as we're trying to figure out what's going on we're introduced to a lot of characters a lot of concepts like the first movie we're trying to determine in a very long setup what we're supposed to be afraid of and what the 
target is. We know Quinn's the target, but we don't know exactly why. I didn't think the jumps were very well done because and maybe i'm just jade and cynical because i do watch a lot of horror movies but i don't think i jumped once in this movie perhaps when water dripped on me from the cup of water i had but it dropped on my leg but i didn't have anything even she got hit by the car i think i subconsciously expected it because i'm so used to horror movies and i still think in this whole franchise the best jump the best scare might have been the guy that was on the balcony in chapter one that all of a sudden was in the room. I did jump at this. I specifically jumped, not that I was scared, I was startled when the car hit her. That's a good word. Startled. This movie can startle you. It cannot scare you. And I would have a physical reaction when those strings came. I was completely expecting them, but still, when you're in dead silence, because I didn't have a crying baby or a snoring man, and then all of a sudden there's a really loud noise, you flinch. It's just a reaction to that. If I'm editing a podcast and Stuart's mic gets real hot, I flinch with then too. It's not that I'm afraid, it's I'm annoyed. Yeah. Well, and now going back to the long setup that we were talking about earlier, Stuart. I looked at my watch and it was about 36 minutes before anything really started to happen in this movie to make me think this was going to be a horror movie. Yeah, the act change is her getting hit by the car. That should have been the exciting incident. That should have been within the first 10 minutes, and it's much, much later. We're introduced to characters. Can anyone tell me who's important here? I know that Quinn and Elise have an important bond because they have similar backstories. They've lost people. They're afraid to go into the further. They're being stalked by their own various demons. But what is the brother doing here? What is the father doing here? What's with the neighborhood kid who has a crush on her? I think he's literally put here so they can do that knocking trick you saw from the trailer, Arnie. I think because he's her next door neighbor, he knocks on the wall. She's lying in bed. She knocks back. They play it like it's a game. And then, of course, when she texts them, he's at grandma's house. So who's knocking? (laughs) I'm surprised you're upset with the pacing of this. For listeners who donated way back when and heard our Exorcist reviews, I feel like this is just a replay of The Exorcist. The languid beginning with the very minor things going on, a book falls here, a bell rings there, or in exorcist a ouija board happens and then there's a medical scene in this case she got hit by a car and exorcist they're doing tests on regan to see what's wrong with her Mm -hmm. and finally she ends up in a bed and being possessed it really i thought you might find this the best of the three no i didn't think it was best of the three but i do think this part is the best I actually think when I'm watching the movie inside the movie, I'm a little annoyed at my audience, but I think, okay, we're going somewhere that's kind of interesting, but it is taking too long. Uh, we, we said that with everyone, with the exception of chapter two, which was just nonstop nonsense, insidious, and many movies that want to emulate The Exorcist have a very lengthy, usually too lengthy buildup to create atmosphere. I'm cool with creating atmosphere. I think this is okay stuff, some better than others. But I am curious to know what this man who... Can't breathe man. I actually ended up having a name. I usually do have to create a nickname when names are too long or whatever. I call him MCB. I mean, man (laughs) who can't breathe. So MCB, that's what I'm going to refer to him. MCB, he looks like he's wearing a hospital gown. He's definitely wearing an oxygen mask. The crazy magical Negro neighbor defines him as, yeah, the man who can't breathe. Can I ask real quick just about his costume design? 
what was that oxygen mask hooked up to? He was pretty spry to be wheeling around in the further an oxygen tank or be hooked up to a respirator. And more to the point, why the fuck does a ghost need to breathe? I think it's just to (laughs) add to the spookiness because you don't see him in a very good light. And I didn't think the effects were all that good. He looked very plasticky. So maybe that's why we only saw him in the darkness. But he did have a really shorty hospital gown on. (laughs) I mean, it was obscenely short. I did notice that. Which begs a larger question. I mean, these ghosts have always been about their costumes. Why does Lipstick Face Demon have lipstick on his face? We're three movies in. We'll still never know. Maybe they'll tell us in chapter four. You know, I know that they're playing that game where they're just meeting out the information in small doses. But what are we to know in this chapter about our central villain? Because I can't tell you one thing about it. When I had to write this plot summary, I didn't know what to say about him. He likes young girls. He's an infirmed man that, yes, has some respiratory issues and used to live in the apartment above the Brimmers. And I can't tell you more. Did he jump out the window? Later, we'll get a scare where the dad thinks that he sees him jump out the window. He follows these bloody footprints to the open window and sees his body. Was that his body? I thought it might have been Hector's body. I'm real confused at that body. If there was a body... Hector didn't die. Hector, the nice next door neighbor, he just disappeared. How do you know you never saw him? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it's him. No, it's the old man. I could tell it was the old man lying there. You could? It was so far away. I could not tell that. I thought it could be anybody. I thought it could be the old black lady. No, we never get a chance to really look at our villain very well. It's actually his most illuminated moment. So maybe that's why you didn't connect him with the figure in the dark. But he has been hanging out by the window, in the window cell. I think they're telling us that he was a suicide victim. So not only is a man he, who can't breathe, he's a man who had nothing to live for. And I think the theme here, I think it's about people that have given up the will to live. This man that jumped out of a window, this girl that thinks her life is over because she didn't get into acting school, this medium who realizes she can't practice anymore because her husband committed suicide. I think that we're to think that this movie is about confronting the depression that comes when you believe you have no reason to go further. Yeah, I had none of that. It really pissed me off. One of the things that I liked about part two was we got backstory on Veilhead. We knew who these ghosts were. I still want to know about the much cooler looking lipstick demon, Darth Maul, but that we at least explained away, and I thought forever put to bed, Veilhead, then that was a plus. I wanted to know why he was wearing an oxygen mask. I wanted to know why they called him the man in the vents. I Wanted to know how he died and why he was killing little girls. It's never going to be explained. It's just a faceless evil, which is less interesting to me than an evil with motivation. Don't say it'll never be explained, Arnie. The explanation for Veilhead came in Chapter 2. What we're to accept and be patient about is that they'll tell us eventually... One day, they'll get back to this, and you'll find out exactly why you put on the mask. And you know what? It won't matter. Because by the time we get to that point, we'll have forgotten that we ever cared. (laughs) I'm not sure I ever did, but I just was frustrated by the lack of an answer. I really thought Act 3. I'm watching this, I'm like, Act 1, kind of dull. Act 2, stuff's happening, but I'd really like to know why. And I just put all my faith in Act 3 to explain it. 
And nah. But I thought he was just collecting young women and he liked to have, not pedophile away, but like, he just liked to have young, pretty female companions because his first pet that we saw was the young pretty girl who had killed herself and that was in the rain the whole time, like Charlie Brown for some reason. So I thought he just liked to surround himself with a young woman as a pet. Oh, so he's a Hollywood mogul. Yes. <laughs> I didn't understand. Yeah, what what we can even pretend to know about him. They never dig up newspaper articles. They never get his actual birth name. I'm even guessing that he lived in that apartment. We don't really know that. But since all the spookiness seems to come from it, I'll just accept it that he was a tenant there once. But yeah, we go into the further when Elise decides she wants to go into the further and she does meet various women. They were his prisoners? They were previous victims. What victims? The first time she goes into the further, they just are weird girls. But the second time she goes into the further, she says, you were his victim. He made you kill yourself. So they were all suicide victims who had lived in that apartment building before and Man CB made them commit suicide. The same way, one of the actual effective scenes for me, and very few, is when he does possess... Quinn, and you think she's going after her dad or Specs and Tucker with this box cutter, and she's like, no, I'm going to make you die of your own pain. And then I think she's going to torture him, and then she takes the box cutter to her own throat. I'm like, wow, that's really not what I expected the demon's motivation to be. Yeah, he's like the bringer of guilt. Like, if I can make you witness someone you love dying, it'll be contagious. You'll eventually be so racked with guilt, you'll commit suicide too. I think that that's what this movie is trying to get at here. But here's the thing. I never believed that Quinn really was that suicidal. And I think it might be the performance. This girl is cute. I liked her. She's an enjoyable. I'm sure she was great on the ant farm. But as a tortured, I can't walk again it'd be one thing if her legs were really broke but she's gonna walk again right they don't tell us she's not an amputee later she we find out there's this doppelganger self where she has no arms and legs and she's crawling around and she has no eyes either yeah there's no face yeah it's weird yeah but but she'll walk again like if they had gone there and said well she's paralyzed that'd be one thing i'd believe that she would have suicidal thoughts the fact that she didn't get into acting school and her legs are fractured for the next couple months, I just don't get tortured out of her. I don't get suicidal. The one thing that also frustrated me is that they really talk a lot about her getting into college. She starts off the movie, she's going for the audition at the only college she wants to go in. And after her accident, her dad, she's asking, did I get any letters from colleges? He's like, let's not talk about that. And then the last time we see her friend, they're Skyping, and she's asking her friend, did you get anything from college? And she's like, oh, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about you. I'm like, there's a secret there. There's something they're covering up. Yes. It's never coming back. And I'm going to blame the studio on this. I actually think Lee Winnell would be perfectly comfortable with the idea that this girl would find out that she didn't get into the college and she isn't going to walk again and she gets really, really into a dark place. I think that's what this movie is trying to do to her. But I think the studio realizes that they don't want the Ant Farm girl to promote the idea in any way of suicide. And so we get a very sanitized version of it here. See, there's so many threads that were just dropped on this. That's just another one. It just seems like... 
I, I, some of these movies that we see like this, I always hold out that there's a stellar director's cut somewhere that'll make it onto the Blu-ray, and I'll be like, oh, I get it now, if I would actually spend the time watching it. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was filmed and not included, or whether it was, these are just detritus from the first draft that by the time they rewrote and rewrote and rewrote characters that used to have a function no longer have a purpose we can't agree at least on this there just seems to be a lot of time filled with emptiness there seems to be a lot of characters and things happening that don't have any kind of narrative payoff this movie is basically about two people and the demons that haunt them yeah I like what you're saying about the idea that there was something with her killing herself. And I'm like, but she does have a guy who loves her. That's at least some solace. He's a nerd, though. What if he died? I really thought going into this movie, he would be dead. This entire series is so bloodless. They refuse to have a body count for fear of risking that PG-13 rating. And really, I'd call this PG-9, truthfully. It's not even 13 worthy. They don't even use their one fuck. The fact that so many characters, the friend, Hector, the brother, he's in the background. He does bring in Tucker and Specs, but the others, I like to think there was an intent for them to have some part in the conclusion as corpses or as living people. Yes. But right now, they're just props. That, that You're absolutely right. It's crazy that anybody can tell you in a horror movie when you add a bunch of characters from different backgrounds, they're there to die in individualistic ways. And don't tell me PG-13. They kill people in PG-13 movies. But for some reason, this franchise can only kill an 80-year-old black woman. Of natural causes. Yes. Yes, exactly. The ghosts don't even kill her. She just happens to die on the same night that Quinn gets thrown around. It's it's so bizarre. And when Quinn gets thrown around, that was a little shocking to me that he, she was going to be beaten up like a rag doll and thrown down. Because I was thinking of the first two films and figured he was going pure possession. I'm like, don't damage the goods if that's going to be your body. But after she's thrown around, this medic comes out of nowhere, has a neck brace. Home health. He was home health nurse. Do you know this? No, he's there to pick up the corpse next door, but thought he could help out and put her in the couch. That was my only explanation is exactly that. Because I'm like, why is there only one? You're never going to get one person in an ambulance. And then I see the ambulance lights. I'm real confused. Oh, they're wheeling away a body. Maybe he stopped by. The landlord's equally bad. Somebody takes the father through the upstairs apartment where you see the... You called it blood. I called it mud. Again, PG-13. You can't show red blood. So they have black footprints that look like this guy was in tar. I'm thinking, I'm really going off the rails because there's nothing in this movie to interest me. I'm wondering, was he a coal miner? Was <laughs> Is that why he can't breathe? Is that why there's tar or soot or something being left in these footprints? Was he killed in the mine? This is all I'm trying to think of. But yeah, the landlord comes out of nowhere and does nothing, anything beyond saying there's nobody living here. No one does anything in this movie until you get to the seance at the end where Elise is there. I mean, wouldn't you be rather disturbed if your daughter is like flying out of bed with two broken legs? I mean, that's something that would, I would think, raise your alarm and maybe send her away or something. I think the dad does. I actually thought he was going to be more of an unbeliever until the end. But he does. He's the one that actually goes to Elise and gets her to tell her story. 
What's crazy to me is that they don't help each other. Even though they build that these are two people from two different generations with exactly the same problem and exactly the same suicidal tendencies, Elise figures out her own shit and Quinn gets helped by her dead mother. They don't help each other in the climax. Well, the father also doesn't help until she's pulled out of the window in front of him. I think he thinks she's emotionally disturbed for getting out of bed the first time. He's still not sure what the hell's going on when she ends up in the apartment upstairs. It's only when he's there and sees her and has to play tug of war with Man CB that he finally goes to Elise. And then, yeah, the number of ghosts that come to the rescue here was reminding me of the Frighteners. The fact that Michael J. Fox had three helpful ghosts in that whole movie. I'm like, who is helping? The mother is helping. The black woman is helping. No one is helping. That, that, that's what I'm saying. There, There is no, even though we have all these people, Tucker and Specs are also here. They've been brought in and proven to be shams. You mentioned the Frighteners. That's a whole point of sham ghost hunters that end up having to be real ghost hunters. Nothing that they do with the technology helps anybody. Nobody helps this girl at all. Except the lady that dies is the voice that tells Elise to look in her diary and find out that the mother before she died wrote on the day she hoped her daughter would graduate from high school a message (laughs) of encouragement that gets her to come back from the further. I mean, how extrapolated and awful is that to try and use everybody to save this girl? Did you have to write all that down, I think, while you're watching? Because that was a (laughs) lot of convolution there to get to that. A lot of spasms. I agree. Why have any of these characters, if the whole point is the only way this girl is going to come back is if her mother talks to her? She spent the whole movie trying to contact her, and eventually, for reasons I don't know, the mother comes in at the very last second. I think it took Elise to finally get her. I don't think she helped. She was off boxing other people. (laughs) She was in the Matrix. Truthfully, I haven't seen an old person fight that good since bum fights. (laughs) oh arnie yeah i uh i i'm with you there i that was the stunner i'll be honest with you up to this point i was so happy that this movie was better than chapter two (laughs) i was considering saying okay this is not as good as the first one but it is it's okay and maybe we'll get to a climax but to find out that the only idea they had left was that poor Lin Shay is going to have to pretend she has martial arts skills and fight these creatures, yes, exactly as Neo would in The Matrix, is a, a stunner. Why would they dare put her in such a compromised, embarrassing position? I mean, they might as well have just torn off her clothes and said, look at the old titties. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad she didn't. That would certainly be rated R. But this is what you get when you have Lee Winnell operating without a net the previous two films had story by james wan it was a collaborative thing lee got sole writing credit but james wan came up with the story james wan directed oh i'm not listening to this james wan did not make those movies better no way no way you're giving too much credit to somebody that no he's here by the way he is playing the uh drama interviewer at the audition i thought that was him he is producing this film but lee said he was too busy with Fast and Furious 7. He was not an on-set producer. But don't tell me that if James Wan had come back in a more pivotal role that you would be on board with this. This is just a dumb movie. I'm just saying that all of this failure we're seeing 
might have been reined in in some regard had James Wan been directing. How do you explain chapter two? As someone that hated chapter two a lot, I disagree. Really, chapter one was a ripoff of another movie, so... Yeah, let's keep in mind here that, yes, Poltergeist was the template. They followed it closely for the best of the trilogy, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion, Arnie. (laughs) And so I'm not into assigning blame at this point. All I know is they've been asked to continue something, and rather than giving us new ghost stories, they've been giving us chapters that supposedly one day will add up to a story, and I'm not buying it. You could tell us everything that we learn about the further in one 90-minute film. The fact that they're dribbling it out over three films is ridiculous. And the fact that they're having Lin Shay as their kung fu superhero is embarrassing. No doubt. This is when I realized there's just no redemption for this movie. And Yep, exactly. I'm pretty checked out. It's like Elise went into the further again. She'd already been there once. She finds her strength. I mean, yeah, I guess it's very Freddy in that way. I don't believe in you. And so Veilhead has to run away and scurry. Although he'll come back and kill her. <laughs> She won't fight him in the first movie when you watch chapter one. No, that's what I was saying. You said I was mad about the continuity of two. No, this movie fucks with the continuity of one more than two. But it ends up being Quinn who has to stand up against the man who can't breathe and rip off his mask. And I mean, she is the star of this movie, despite the billing, despite Lee Winnell saying it's Lynn Shea's story. It's Quinn's story. She has to stand up for herself at the end, be a strong woman with the help of her mother and everybody believing in her and reading her the note that was left. Did the mother leave that note while she was alive? Yes. Okay. She knew she was dying and she left. She knew that her daughter was going to graduate. I guess it's one of those diaries that has the date in it. You can't write as much as you want. You can only write within like the page of that date and that's it. It's very restrictive. So she knew the date of the graduation. She knew she wasn't going to make it. So she wrote in on that page an encouraging word that I'm sorry. So what is this movie telling us? The only way to defeat suicide is to listen to your mother? Yes. (laughs) Okay, well, that's pretty trite. You know what would really scare tweens these days? Finality. You know, like, (laughs) the idea that this mother's going to always be there and she that we're all watched over by this... uh, No, that's, I'm sorry, that's just ridiculous. This is a trite concept that the mom is going to fix it all and that everywhere she goes for the rest of her life, her mother is going to be watching from the wings and proud of her. I don't know why the mom would be proud of her. She fucked up her audition. Yeah, I did kind of feel bad about that when she was watching the audition. I'm like, oh, so you watched her really bomb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but she was so proud. I mean, th- this is bad parenting. I- I'm sorry, but this is just, I'm not a parent. Maybe I can't judge. But in the context of this movie, I don't feel like this ghost is doing herself or her family any favors by haunting them for the rest of their life by giving them this bogus BS pep talk when people need to fail. They need to feel lost. They need to understand what finality is because we all must face that. This is infuriating. Stuart, I think there's some kids on your lawn. <laughs> Perhaps. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm accepting of being the angry old man that's too old for this shit. I should maybe put on a ventilator and, and creep away. Much like the villain of this movie, he's just suddenly gone. The problem with this movie is so much of it was just incomprehensible. 
And it's almost like they assumed we had knowledge of this. Like, I should have been doing homework before I went and saw the movie. And that's why none of it makes sense. And there's no real story about this. The Finding Your Strength story was really effing lame. So it's just kind of like, I don't know. Maybe it was just a vehicle for this girl to be a scream queen. Although I don't think she's really good at screaming. I don't think that she's going to do any more horror movies. I feel like her destiny is in rom-coms. She's got a lightness. I I do not want to knock Stephanie Scott. I think that in the right vehicle, she could excel. Here as a depressed, I can't walk and I'm going to kill myself victim in a horror movie where she's constantly got to be afraid. I just, uh, this seemed like a miscasting in a movie that probably shouldn't have even been made. So <laughs> there you go. What What can she do? I don't blame the actors. I really don't. I feel like nobody comes off very well. You know, but Lin Shea has to do Kung Fu. You know, that it's a losing proposition. Well, let's not prolong this. I want to know how this show will go. Tell me, my friends, are there any recommends? Marjorie. Oh my god. Oh. Do I recommend this movie? No. <laughs> I think that it was slow. It was confusing. You feel like you're missing parts of the movie. It wasn't scary. If you're looking for a good scare, there's so many other good scary movies out there. This didn't have an interesting story. I was bored many times throughout this movie. And I probably talked more than I should have during this movie, but there's no one else in the theater with us, so it's probably okay. I-, I can't recommend this movie, and so far I'm, what, one for three on this series for recommending? I'm sure that Stephanie Scott's going to have a nice marginal career ahead of her. I don't see her becoming, like, the next Diane Keaton or anything like that. She wasn't bad in this movie. I just think it's a good movie for her. But yeah, I, I can't recommend this. Sorry. No. I- I- who am I apologizing to? I don't recommend this. Stuart. Well, much like Elise explains, you know, the world of light and darkness, I think you can look at this movie two ways. If I take the light position, it was fine. It had some mild uh, atmosphere. I jumped a few times. It had a cute lead. It gave Lin Shay some good moments. But as it goes further into the further, my problems with the entire series take me to that dark realm. I can't give this an endorsement because it irritates me that this movie is constructed this way. I've already said it. Ghost stories are great. This is the kind of horror movie I typically like. But if you can't tell me who the ghosts are, why they died, their stories in a way that's dramatically satisfying and contained within one film... It feels like a fuck you. And this movie feels like a big fuck you to anyone that is trying to follow the garbled continuity from chapters one and two till now. It shits on Lin Shay's story. It tells us nothing about the man who can't breathe. It's a nothing movie. I mean, you literally walk out of it wondering what the hell you just watched. If you were to ask me, what is this movie about? I I would shrug. I mean, I guess... At, at, when I'm giving it all the credit I can, it is a failed attempt to a deal with the depression that comes with suicide, but the embodiment of that depression is a complete blank. I can't believe they did not tell us a backstory for MCB, and I just feel like I don't ever want it again. Because I said I want it in this movie, does that mean that when they roll around to chapter 7 or 8 and they give it to me, I'm going to be satisfied? This series is one long cock tease. And so this is a not recommend. 
And I think I'm kind of taking the light side of your argument, Stuart. When you were describing the light side, this movie's pretty unobtrusive. It's short. It certainly scared the few teenagers in the audience, the teenage girls. It had some startling moments. It had a couple unexpected turns. I mean, I don't hate it. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. When I look at it as just this chapter. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt about all three of them. You know, I'm just like, it's whatever. But I'm going to give this one a not recommend for one clear reason. Okay, good. (laughs) I don't even care what it is. I'm like, just do not tell me you're going to recommend this and still stand by your red arrow for the first one. I can't take it. No, no. (laughs) The difference is we just reviewed for our platinum level donors the remake of poltergeist which was also you know you heard my review but it was better than this by far i i'm so glad to hear you say that i was going to bring that up as we rank the series but yes poltergeist just shows this series up every time the original and the reboot yeah and the reboot one of the things donors heard us say is that we felt they were jumping in on the ghost craze, like the, we were here first, so let's bring them back. And yeah, once I have Poltergeist to compare this to, a weak possible recommend is quite clearly a weak not recommend. There's better PG-13 ghost stories out there right now. There will be forever on video, and this is too much of a mess to ever truly endorse. Not recommend. Yeah, so you guys didn't go back, you didn't watch it again, maybe you can't see through the fog of memory even the difference between the chapters, but I'm definitely going to say, one, I'd still say you could see that. It is comparable to the Poltergeist reboot, although I still think the reboot's better. But yes, this is just not a good prospect for where this franchise is heading, and I feel like three would be the next one there. Two, it's just heinous. And like I said, the fact that they're going to do a two for the man who can't breathe and tell us later down the line, it's too late, right? We don't care. You're not burning with questions. It's much like Quinn. I mean, remember, Quinn's like, the whole reason why she wanted to contact her mother was she had questions for her. And then when she finally gets to see her at the end of the movie, the only question she has is, is any of this real? I I agree. Is any of this matter? Does any of this have any reality to it? The answer is no. I think you're right, Stuart. They've got to really do something to scare the crap out of me or scare my pants off or something for me to continue with this. Because now I just feel like this is a masturbatory exercise in pain. Yes. Masturbatory. Yes. That's a great word. It's a great experience, too, by the way. But (laughs) (laughs) Well, masturbation is usually fun. Yeah, it's more fun. I wish I had spent 90 minutes wanking myself, honestly. Yeah, that would have been more fun. I guess it's not a threat unless they announce a fourth one, but they probably will if they haven't already. They're going to do it. It made enough money, right? They're not going to stop. They haven't announced it yet. Lee Winnell said if they make another one, they're going to continue in the prequel era because they want to keep Elise alive. Oh, God. Why can't they just deal with her being a ghost? Maybe it's too expensive? I don't know. But <laughs> the my feeling about this isn't even any of that. But when I looked back on the first two Insidious films, especially pre-Oculus Rift, I was getting them really confused with the Conjuring Annabelle films and yeah. Sinister and so many other films. I'm like, which one was Insidious again? We did a couple duologies of ghost stories we didn't really like all that much. And then 
We saw this on a Sunday afternoon. The glory of you taking a vacation is we didn't have to pay premium prices. And I have to take time off work this week to go see Jurassic World to fit our recording schedule. I was able to just do this leisurely. The downside of that was when it came to the day of recording, I'm like, oh, fuck. Do you remember the movie, Marjorie? Because I don't remember the movie. And I just had to basically relive the movie through my copious notes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I did that for about two hours before recording so that I could come in here remembering the movie. My word for this entire series is forgettable. Bland. What I was going to say is as you're talking, this entire series is just very bland. I will commit to rewatching the trilogy before doing a four so I can remember them. But yeah, God, we'll, we'll just have to see how it looks. I think it's a, uh, you know, take it as it comes. Human Centipede 4, fuck you. But, uh, you <laughs> know, Insidious 4, eh, I just don't know. There's so much more to cover. I don't know what I'm going to be saying next week when we get to Mission Impossible, a franchise I have seen nothing of. Absolutely nothing. I never watched the TV show. I never saw any of the movies. There's five of them, and we'll be building up to that fifth movie at the end of July, starting next week. Well, there are actually more Mission Impossible movies. I have watched quite a bit of the old series, nowhere near all of it, but I watched it as a youth. I refreshed now. And yes, like Incredible Hulk, a lot of the two-part episodes got overseas theatrical distribution. <laughs> oh no! Well, we're not covering them. I'm glad you're watching them. We'll talk about them, I guess. Yeah, but I have seen three of the five current Mission Impossible movies. I just never got around to Ghost Protocol. I'm happy to be doing it. I'm the fan, and we're going to be starting that next week. But for fans of horror, ghost horror, we have taken out of the vault our original trilogy of Poltergeist reviews, and we reviewed this new Poltergeist installment. And the only way to hear it is to donate and support Now Playing. We're a crowdsourced show. We rely on you enjoying our weekly show enough to open your hearts and open your wallets to keep this weekly show going. And with a platinum donation of $35 or more, you get a ton of reviews, 16 reviews. You get the four Poltergeist reviews. You get four Jurassic World, Jurassic Park reviews. You get four Indiana Jones reviews. You get two other Michael Crichton reviews, Future World and Westworld. And finally, coming up soon, you get Goonies. You get 16 podcasts for that $35 or more. If you don't want the Poltergeist films, there are the gold and silver levels available. You can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. And I really hope you do join us for those Poltergeist shows. I enjoyed all of them. I gave a green arrow to all of them. So if anyone thinks I'm just a hater of new horror movies, that is counterpoint. I will actually defend what I like about new horror movies with the Poltergeist reboot. So Marjorie Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now, leave this podcast! Leave this podcast! Leave this podcast now! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You called me here, and I'm taking that as an acceptance of my readings. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Saw. 
Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. I'm going to need some time alone to concentrate. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll get on that this afternoon. I'll have to come too. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. What choice do I have? Gotta pay Dalton's bills. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Please help him, please. Now Playing's Insidious Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. They crave life, the chance to live again. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. It's the most important part of her process. Uh, that's debatable. It's not debatable. The Insidious films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. And did you really believe that would help? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Why are you looking at me like that? You think I did this? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media Production copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Come on, let's get out of here. If he's Spence, then it might be part of the act that he has to prep the equipment. Specs. Specs. What did I say, Spence? Spence. If he was Spence... She doesn't like having air blown in her face. I don't. Anytime I'm not a I dog. do it, she says... Yep, that's exactly what she says. <laughs> Brother Alex is a fan of the ghost hunting web series Spectral Sightings, and he's the one that suggests inviting over Specs and... Oh, I wrote Specs and Parker. Boy, these <laughs> names. What's the other guy's name? Tucker, I think. Yeah, you're right. I'll say it again. They're after the, the after the airplane. God, it, it's like a it's like an insidious movie. There's just all these weird noises in the background all the time. It's very annoying. Resurgence around that time with the figures. Not the Dolph Lundgren version. Logo from the toys. Trust me. Uh, you're completely wrong. It is Dolph Lundgren. I, I I mean I, it is. It's, are you are you certain you want to go down on that? <laughs> How many times am I going to be asked that question? <laughs> are you sure you want to blow Dolph Lundgren? I found a picture of it hanging. We have been Dolphed, people. It's Dolph, it is, right? It is Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, okay. Yeah, be glad that didn't go out in the air. Because <laughs> you know somebody would have been like. I can't even remember his name. The man who can't breathe? Yeah, I want to say the man with no name. I'm like, where's Clint Eastwood? She's cute, and she probably has a nice career, kind of like Selena Gomez ahead of her. Who I'm not staying Justin Bieber, so maybe I shouldn't say that. Yeah, why don't you just rephrase? Okay. (laughs) That was the most backhanded insult I've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, wasn't she in the one with uh, James Franco? (laughs) She's not exactly wholesome. That's true. 
What was that movie called? Spring Breakers? Spring Breakers. It was really good. I did enjoy it, actually. I I will admit that I did spend the entire movie wondering what the hell happened to Dylan McDermott. And then only when I exited the movie and mentioned to Arnie, it was Dermot Mulroney. So, again, what the hell (laughs) happened to him, though? Because he looks horrible. I thought it was like Colin Farrell's long-lost older brothers had a really rough life. Mm-mm. It's the Keith David David Keith thing that yes. Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott. Dylan McDermott looks good. Dermot Mulroney. But uh, yeah, they're both Irishmen that kind of look the same. Dylan McDermott was in American Horror Story, so he already had his. Yes, I've seen him in an airport before. Very dapper man. <laughs> Leave this podcast. Leave this podcast. Leave this podcast now. No problem. <laughs> Just don't shout anymore. <laughs>